we have an awful lot of peace for having this nice music and this nice gathering here today in a very quiet, peaceful place. But I hope, for your sake, I hope you can enjoy it. We want to thank God for it and thank God for the beautiful weather we're having. But it won't last too much longer. Most of you know that. But I think many of us, perhaps you young people, don't get the picture. We're going to be living into some of the most hair-raising, traumatic, and exciting times in the entire history of the world within the next several years. I think it's going to start happening big time within the next two to four years, maybe even sooner, maybe later this year, that we'll see big things break through. Right now, China is beginning to show her power very clearly against the Americans. That is a section on Fox News the other night showing how they have these eight or nine coral reefs out in international waters, and the, science, the Chinese are trying to turn them into islands. They've got a great big airstrip on one of them already so their military planes can land, and they're warning us off. We've said we're going to keep using that airspace. It's international. They say, well, it's not. So we're headed for a confrontation with China out there. We're already having trouble with Russia and the Ukraine, and Putin and his armies keep moving, keep moving to take over more and more of the Ukraine, and we talk and we talk and we talk and we don't do anything, but nevertheless it's a very bad situation, and I think many of you realize that. We're on the verge of war in a number of ways. Also, ISIS, this terrible terrorist group that the Arabs have put together over there, the, the, the very militant Muslims, it's killing people, literally chopping their heads off, torturing, raping, robbing, all kinds of things. It's a terrible group they've got over there. And it's moving, moving throughout the Middle East. And again, they really don't have any effective strategy to stop it. And many of the newscasters are saying that. What's going on? The pride of power of America is already going down the tubes. And other nations realize that. I don't think our average American gets that. I think our American media doesn't like to emphasize it very much. They like to say all is well. All is well, but brethren, all is not well. This world really needs another government. We really desperately need the government of God under Jesus Christ. And we've got to understand that. When this thing starts to break open fully and people are in genuine suffering, starvation, Drought, alternating drought, famine, lack of food, disease epidemics, horrible earthquakes, everything happens, and then these wars come down on us. People are going to say, wow, you told us about it, but it's coming even worse and faster than we realize. But I just tell you, it's going to happen, and you're going to live to see it. The vast majority of you, probably within the next two or three years, is going to start to happen, and it'll break open fully in a powerful way, within 8 to 12 years, I'm sure. Maybe that will even include the Great Tribulation officially beginning within 8 to 12 years. We don't want to set an exact time. But they're going to be the most exciting and traumatic times in human history. But Christ is preparing. Jesus Christ is the living head of this church. Christ is alive, and he is building a team to assist him in tomorrow's world in ruling this nation at first with a rod of iron. Most of you understand that. I've explained it. Christ has to rule with a rod of iron. He can't come with a turkey feather. People are not going to pay attention. They've got to have power or they will not listen. The only thing these dictators around the world listen to and pay attention to is one thing. Overwhelming force. Overwhelming force. Then they will listen. Otherwise, they don't pay much attention to all this talk coming out of Washington or London or wherever our leaders are. Mr. Herbert Armstrong mentioned for years that there are two main reasons why you and I are being called today. We're not just called for our own salvation. We could be called later on during the millennium or in the great white throne judgment. But the two reasons we're called now are first to help do the work of God. To get this warning message out to our people of the coming tribulation and to preach the good news of the coming government of God. That's one reason. The second big reason we're called now, rather than later on, is to prepare a people for God. To prepare a people to be those kings and priests talked about in the Bible to assist Christ in ruling this world. That's the second reason, and that's one reason thing I'm going to pray about. Christ is preparing a group of people right now. You are in that group. 
You are being prepared right now, if you're listening, to help be those kings and priests in tomorrow's world, to help straighten out this world. And I hope we can understand that. Back in Revelation 2, very powerful scripture, very basic ones, most of you know. Jesus said, Revelation 2, 26, speaking in the first term, first person. He who overcomes and keeps my works, Christ's works, until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. We're going to have power, brethren. We've got to have that power. People like Saddam Hussein used to be and all these other dictators now, Assad and the other terrorists in ISIS, they don't pay attention to talk. Power has got to be there. They will have power over the nations. He shall rule them, that's us who overcome. We shall rule them with the rod of iron as the potter's vessel should be broken in pieces. So that's going to happen in a few years from now. Are you getting ready for that? Do you realize how important that is? Then over in chapter 5 and verse 9, it talks about the prayers of the saints. In verse 8, and they sang a new song, Revelation 5, verse 9. Here it is. You are worthy to take the scroll. The true saints of God are praying or singing. You're worthy to take the scroll to open its seals. For you were slain. Christ was slain for our sins. And you were redeemed and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God. It's already been done. That's interesting the way it's worded. You have made us. It's already been done in God's plan if we just go along and do our part. He's already decided that those saints of his who are faithful, those saints of his remain to the end. They have already got this reward that's already planned. Uh, He has made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on this earth. Not up in heaven, but on this earth. God already has that in mind. He is now preparing a people to help rule this earth. A team, a converted team this time. He had Lucifer and a bunch of carnal angels that rebelled under him. One third of the angels, but now he's going to be sure we're a loyal team, a loyal team to assist him in ruling this world. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you want to turn there with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in your Bible, something you really all should be able to understand and speak to others, by the way. It covers many different things that come up that people in the world don't understand this. So-called Christians don't get it. First Corinthians 10, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that our fathers, that is the ancient patriarchs, Moses and Aaron and the servants of God back then, all were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they all drank the same spiritual drink, and they all ate the spiritual food. And that rock the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Christ was that great, powerful spirit being who followed them, helped them, delivered them again and again. With, But with most of them, and this is how it's going to be with most of God's people today, I'm sorry to say, God indicates that. With most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the, in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. We're not to lust after this world. We're not to be watching our computer day and night and night and day and keep on all this silly stuff they put on television and internet. That's not to be our life. We're not to take that, devour our time. Your time is your life. If it's all spent on that stuff, it's very empty. Do not become idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written, the poor people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They got in a sex orgy. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Can you imagine that? What if 23,000 people in the United States were struck down for sexual immorality? Who did they tempt? Christ. Christ was that rock. Christ was the head of the Old Testament. He was the God of Israel. His name was Jesus Christ. He is the rock. He is their God. He is our God today in a different way. Now these things all happen to them as examples. They're to teach us lessons. That's why we're supposed to read these things. And they were written for our admonition. 
Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We're to be careful. These things are coming and they're coming upon us. The vast majority and we need to understand it. Now let's go, brethren, to Exodus 18. Christ was the God of Israel. He's the one who spoke to Moses back there. Let's turn back there and see what Christ did when he started building his team. Because he's building a team right now. Christ is building a team to assist us, him in tomorrow's world. And he was building a team back there to assist him. This is the mind of God. This Bible is the way God thinks, the way God does. God does not change his basic way of doing things. So here's an example. It shows how in Exodus chapter 18, verse 13, Moses was there having to judge the whole nation of Israel by himself. The people stood before Moses from morning to evening. Great big long lines. I remember that's how it was at Big Sandy. Some of you older brethren may remember that. Maybe that no one goes back that far, but... We had big long lines there in the anointing lines. And I know my Uncle Paul would be in one little tiny office, little many offices, and then Dr. Hay and another, and I'd have one with me, and they'd have another, and four or five of us there anointing people. And the big lines would move forward. They'd have chairs, and they'd move forward. The people had been scattered. They didn't have local churches. They had sick kids. They were sick. They didn't know how to eat. Everyone, it seemed like, needed help or needed anointing or needed counseling. That was worse than that back there. Moses was doing it all by himself. And his father-in-law said, what are you doing? You're going to wear out. He said in verse 16, when they have a difficulty, they come to me and I judge between one and another. And I make them known the statutes of God and his laws. I teach them God's ways. So Moses' father-in-law said, the thing you do is not good. Both you and these people will wear out. Listen to my counsel, he said in verse 20. You shall teach them the statutes and laws. Yes, go ahead and teach them the right way they can walk. Moreover, you shall select. There's no voting, no politicking. God guided it as he would choose a servant and tell that servant to choose others and guide them in that selection. You shall select from all the people able men such as fear God. Do you want to be on Christ's team, ruling the world tomorrow? That's the first qualification. Fear God. Make God very real to you. Feed on this book, as I say again and again. Be in awe of God, not of a monster, but a powerful being who is very, very real, whom I've seen causing these things to happen, specifically that Mr. Armstrong said way back 70 years ago, and kept happening, kept happening. They're still happening. So you select these able men who fear God. And that's the key thing. Able men. Stating covetousness. They're not to be enriching themselves. Place such over them to be rulers of thousands, hundreds, fifties, rulers of tens. And the commentaries and histories that most, most uh, Jewish scholars acknowledge, these were not ten people. These would have been ten families. And they had, you know, big families back then, often four to eight children. So it might be 50 people or more. And then you had rulers of thousands. That might have been 50,000. And let them judge the people. Then they'll bring every important matter, the big matters to you. Moses was kind of like a Supreme Court. And you shall judge that. But all the smaller matters, they will judge and bear the burden with you. If you do this thing and God is with you, you'll be able to endure. And it will work out. So Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law, and God obviously guided that and put this in the Bible. As the historians tell us, and the experts who write on management, this is the first example of management given in history. It's in the Bible. How to manage. Delegate, delegate, delegate. Give others part of the job. Be sure that they're capable. They're dedicated. Be sure they know how to do it. And then you need to watch over to make you in general to see if they do it okay. They can't always do it exactly like you do. But they've got to do it basically correctly and get the job done. You can oversee that to a certain extent. So Moses did it. And he chose able men out of all Israel and he then did what God said. He made them rulers of thousands, hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of ten. And so they judged the people at all times. And the hard cases, they would bring to Moses. And I'm sure that the Bible indicates over and over that you're to have multitude of counsel. And Moses probably had Aaron 
and her and others helping him as he sat down and had to make hard decisions and then he would make the final decision on these big problems that had to be brought directly to him because God says again and again in multitude of counsel you shall do things. You read back that in Proverbs 11 verse 14 and many places all through the book of Proverbs. Now brethren Let's notice what God then said a little bit later to Israel here and to Moses. He turned to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1, if you would. And let's begin reading here in verse uh, 10. He said, See, I've set before you the land, he told uh, Moses. They were about to go into the promised land. And he said, I promised you. And you're here as the stars of heaven in multitude. May the Lord your God, verse 11, may he uh, make of you fathers, make of you young fathers a thousand times more numerous than you are and bless you as he promised. How can I alone bear your burdens, your burdens and complaints? Verse 13, choose. He told Moses again, choose understanding and knowledgeable men from among your tribes and I will make them heads over you. And you answered me, the thing which you've told us is good. So I took the heads of your tribes, older men who were already tried and tested and had proved themselves faithful. I took the heads of your tribes, leaders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Then I commanded your judges at that time, saying, Hear the cases between your brethren and judge righteously. And brethren, as you are given, some of you will be given a job to do. You're going to be the head of the committee, or at least part of a committee, a group, a team, to help out with this project or that project as the work grows and things come along. Learn from that. It's all part of God's government. Realize you are part of the team that Christ is preparing to rule this world and tomorrow's world. And try to watch others as they do, and pray for them, and give them help. You're to judge righteously between a man and his brother on the, or the stranger who is with you. The Gentiles who lived among them, be fair to everybody. And you shall not show partiality in judgment. Some of our leaders in the past, even in the church, had the buddy system. They try to work with their buddies too much and not with others. That's not good. I've tried very hard to avoid that. Some of you don't know that. I'd explain it. I'd have to talk about people and personalities if I explained it. But we must not do that. Did I choose Mr. Ames because he was my brother-in-law? No. I've had four or five brothers-in-laws. I would not choose to have chosen any one of them to do the telecast. Many of them were very fine men, but they were not the type to do the telecast. He was. And for dozens of us, I'm sure you could talk to Mr. and Mrs. Davis and Mrs. Zapardian and others that go back that far. And most of them would tell you that Mr. Ames was already the favorite one. We used to four different men on the telecast for a worldwide. And Mr. Ames was the one most of the church brethren respected the most. That's why he's there. Well, I've not tried to put my family in all the key positions. Some people said, well, you brought your son out as your assistant. Yes. But some said Jim's going to take over the work. No, he's not going to take over the work. If God wants him to later on in 10 or 25 years, God will work that out. But as far as I can see, that's not happening. That's not my plan. That would be wrong to just stick him in. He doesn't want that. That's not why he's here. And, and, and I'm not trying to put anyone else in my family in that particular way, as most of you know. You're not to show partiality. You're not to have buddies. I could have certain ministers in the field that I personally enjoy being with socially more than some of the men in high positions. But I don't put them in some big job just because I like them that way. Don't show partiality. You shall not be afraid of any man's presence. Don't be uh, 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 bugged or uh, overwhelmed by some important a acting guy. Don't let him push you around. Don't do that. Fear God and do it his way. And then God will be with you. So God warned them back there of those very things. And we're, we've got to follow that today as part of God's government. It's to be God's government, Christ's government. Christ is preparing a team right now. Now let's turn to Second Chronicles, if you would. Second Chronicles chapter 19. Follow me in your Bible. It's the mind of God. Second Chronicles 19. It talks about Jehoshaphat whom these chapters all around show is a very great king of, of Judah, very faithful overall. 
It says in verse 4, Second Chronicles chapter 19, verse 4, So Jehoshaphat dwelt at Jerusalem. He was the king over Judah. And he went out again among the people and brought them back to the Lord their God of their fathers. Then he said, judges in the land. These rulers or judges, they were like governors and made judgments as, as a judge as well throughout the cities of Judah and said to the judges, take heed what you're doing for you do not judge for man but for the, what? Yahweh, for the ever-living one who is with you in the judgment. Christ was to be with them in the judgment even back then carnally. Christ will be with you in the judgment. How much more today, brethren, when we have God's Spirit not just with us, but in that, in us. If we have faithful men, like Mr. Ames, Dr. O'Neill, Mr. Weston, the other leaders, I better not go on, I'll be leaving someone out, so most of the men I could say are like that, then Christ will be with them in the judgment. And that's what it says, and that's the principle. Christ is alive. Now, therefore, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Take care and do it, for there is no iniquity with the Lord our God, no partiality, no partiality or taking of bribes. I've had people hundreds of times, I'm not exaggerating, it happened even back in Worldwide, and how much more here, send me money personally, $100, a few cases, $1,000 or various things. I've never taken a dime of it. I don't want that. That's not right. I just get my normal salary, and that rest of it was intended to give to God. So I just signed the check over to the work, and I lie not. I've never taken that money, not one dime that I could ever remember doing that. I don't want to. You're not to show partiality. You're not trying to bribe anyone. Not that the brethren met as a bribe. They were just trying to be nice, but we have a policy not to let that even happen to any of us. In Ephesians chapter 1, turn there now, Ephesians chapter 1, notice what God tells us here. The first chapter of Ephesians in your New Testament, and here's one of these long, long sentences of the Apostle Paul that's a half a page. So I'll break in here at verse 19 talking about what is the exceeding greatness of his power, God's power toward us who believe according to the work of his mighty power, which he, God, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality, power, might, dominion, and every named name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Christ has every title, every honor, every power in the entire universe under God the Father only. And again, it's hard for us to understand that, to picture how big the universe is and how many hundreds of millions of angels are out there. And they all know that Christ is second in command and that he and the Father are one. They think alike, they act alike, they are alike. They are one God, extremely close in everything they do. So Christ is alive and God has put all things under his feet and gave him Christ to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body. We are his body. When he was on the earth, he had two hands and two feet and two eyes and ears and all those things. Today, we are his hands and feet. He can do it apart from us. We know that. He's chosen to use us, our mouths to preach his gospel, our, our fingers to write his articles and get his message out. And all of you who work in the offices there and everywhere else, all of your brethren who pray for us, help us in various ways and send in generous tithes and offerings, backing us up with that, with your prayers, your encouragement, and personally helping others, your neighbors, writing others, calling them, doing everything you can to help out. We become Christ's body. We do that for him as his body, the instrument he uses. The church is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Christ is not the dead head. It says Christ is the head. He gave him to be the head over what? Church administration? Yes. But he's head over all things. He's head over the youth program. He's head over the mailing office. He's head over editorial. He's head over the television. He's head over the internet. He's head over the business office. He's head over every single department in the work every facet of the church he's alive he has all power 
Does he always do it perfectly through human beings? No. I've been in the work far longer than any of you here, as most of you know. I've been there. I've seen it. He allows us to make mistakes. But overall, in the end, he straightens it out. And brethren, I tell you before God, I've seen that again and again. I've seen how things seem to go wrong. Is it too late? I wondered sometimes. It never was too late. God intervened and straightened it out. And the work went on. And even when Mr. Armstrong was old and couldn't see and couldn't hear it, and was just as bad as I am, if not worse, toward the very end, and people were taking advantage, God was still there. He never gave up. Christ is alive. He will always work it out for good. He will always work it out for good. He is not the dead head. He is the living head. So you want to really understand that, that Christ is alive and have faith in that. Be on Christ's team. With all your heart, want to be that part of that group, that team that Jesus Christ is using. A couple of weeks, three or four weeks ago, I gave a sermon on the, the family. We're the family. We're to help each other. I want to follow through on that. This is part of it. Part of the family. We're a family. We're also the team that Christ is using to help prepare the way for the coming kingdom of God. And we're going to be his team. Spirit beings. Spirit beings helping straighten out this whole world in a very few years under Jesus Christ. So we want to really understand it. Let's turn back, if you would, now to chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 and beginning in verse uh, 1. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1 at this point. Paul says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord. So he was already, of course, having a chain, bound with a chain and in a limited imprisonship. Beseech you to have a walk worthy of the calling with which you're called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. Miss Rames has to bear with me in love. Dr. O'Neill has to bear with me in love. I have to bear with them in love. We all have to bear with each other in love. Where none of us are perfect. None of us do perfectly well. We have to have kindness and patience and keep going. Trusting Christ will take care of it. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We're to keep unity. God powerfully wants unity. He saw what happened when Satan turned aside. Could have destroyed his entire plan if he hadn't Sept in with even greater power. The unity of the Spirit. There is one body. There's one basic body that God is using. One Spirit. One basic attitude. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord. One faith. One baptism. One God and Father of all who is above all, through all, and in you all. That Holy Spirit from God is in every single converted person. And each one is guided by that if they're fully converted. Some are closer to Christ than others. We know that. But if we see God's Spirit working, we know that in the end, they're going to be in God's kingdom. God may rebuke and chase them. God may shake them till their teeth rattle, as he's had to do many, many, many times through the years, as he'll do all of you. He tries to test you, but he'll make sure their attitude is really right on every facet of his law. Then he'll bring them into his kingdom in his time, in his way, once they've learned all the lessons God wants them to learn. Turn, drop down to verse 11. Ephesians 4, verse 11. And he himself, Christ, the living head of the church, gave some, what? He gave some to be apostles. So here, Christ sets these offices. He gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Christ gave those offices. And there are, those are offices in the Bible. We ought to have them in the church. And certainly we do have them up to evangelists. And I've had 15 to 35 people or maybe more like 80 or 100 over the years tell me, you're an apostle. I say, no, I'm not an apostle. God did not appoint me to be an apostle. And if he wants me to be an apostle, he will give me some unusual miracles and many of the things. He hasn't done that yet. So I'm what I was ordained as by Mr. Herbert Armstrong, whom the fruit show was an apostle. And that's good enough. We don't need a bigger title. Our main job is not to have a title, not to strut around acting important, but to try to do what God says and do the work we can, the best we can, to serve God, to serve Christ, our living head, to serve the church, to serve the work, to serve our fellow man, to serve our families, 
and to serve all human beings the best we can through Jesus Christ in us. But we have in the church evangelists, we have the pastors and teachers, and of course the teachers would normally be the elders. We have those offices, and we're grateful for that. Christ set those offices, why? Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. The building up, the strengthening, that's why the offices are there. That kind of structure is God's structure. It causes a greater job to be done. Till we all come in the unity. That structure by having leaders, if you don't have a leader, if a father is not a leader and the wife isn't sure what to do, the children run wild, everything goes wrong. They need a deeply converted father. If the father deserts the family, the mother has to move in and take over sometimes. There's got to be a leader. And God put it that way, that we no longer should be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness by which they lie in wait to deceive. We saw what happened to our brethren in worldwide. A lot of you younger people in the church, you don't understand that. That's been a great trial to me in a sense through the years, realizing that I personally taught over 2,000 students at Ambassador College. I was able to work with so many who became ministers, hundreds of them. I wasn't the only teacher. They had several others, Mr. Armstrong and Dr. Hay and Ted and Mr. Fortoon and others, but I was one of their main teachers. It hurt me powerfully to see how they turned, how could they possibly turn aside? But they did turn aside. And many of you are going to turn aside if you don't really wake up and get stirred and understand that God indicates that maybe half the brethren are going to be unwise, foolish virgins. He talks about the wise virgins who had God's spirit and half of them were foolish virgins. And even among the wise virgins, right at the end, some are going to fall away. He describes back in Ezekiel, you know, the very first chapter or two, how that there are going to be some that will be protected and taken to a place of safety in a certain protective sense and then some of them will cast back out of his hand and they will be burned up too. Some will be taken to Petra or a place of safety, and then they'll get sour and vain even there and be cast back out. People are weak. You're weak, every one of you here. Understand it. Fear God. I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm trying to help you think. You've got to understand that and fear God. Have the awe of God as these things start to happen, as the terrible storms hitting Texas start to spread across more of the nation later. I'm not saying they're all going to happen next week, but these things are going to happen all over. There will be powerful storms and then terrible drought and alternating storms and drought and massive earthquakes, massive disease epidemics such as we have never experienced and various kinds of race riots, class riots, political riots, and there are right now more little wars and ethnic wars going on in all the nations around the world than there ever have been in modern times. Everywhere, Satan is stirring up an enmity against authority, a rebellion against authority, and it's happening everywhere, and even company in the corporate world, and especially in the political world, and the church is turning on one another. Satan is behind all that. We know that. But you've got to have the awe of God and understand that. We've got to have built strongly the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God that we're not tossed around and tricked by cunning craftiness. These people coming along with false doctrines are very cleverly trying to show how God's laws are done away and how you don't really have to keep the holy days and how this and how that. They have various ways of very cleverly preaching against the truth. But speaking the truth in love, and we are to do it in love because we love the world, we love our brethren, we want to help them, may grow up in all things to him who is the head, Christ. We've got to imitate Christ, do exactly what he says in his word, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by whatever joints each joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. We're to be knit together with that love, a deep kindness, a deep pro pro appreciation for what each one can do. There are certain things I can't do very well at all. Some things Mr. Ames does much better than me. Certain things Dr. so does better. Some things Mr. Weston does better, who's up in Canada. And some things, of course, Mr. Millich does in his own church area, Dr. Fall. 
certain things Mr. Wakefield does better in his area. Each one of us has strengths the other one does not have. And we need to humble ourselves before one another. Submit to one another, it says in Ephesians 5. Not just uh, so wives submit to their husbands. He says submit to one another. We're all to learn that attitude. That is part of the true government of God. We have certain men who've gone out there appointing themselves, as some of you know, apostles and prophets and giving themselves all kinds of titles. The ones that have done that have normally been the ones that are just mean. They're mean as a junkyard dug, and they will jog, and they're just cracked down on those who don't jump when they say jump. They say, anyway, it's pretty bad. I better not go on about that. I don't want to name names, although some of them attack me by name. That's not my point. But understand it. We're not to do that. We don't do that in this church. If we have ministers who are little dictators, you tell me and we'll work with them. We'll get rid of them if we have to. But we're not going to have that. But we are to have authority. But we're to administer the the work, the government of God in love. To do the very best we can to serve every human being. Each of you, brethren, sitting here right now, think about it. Ask yourself, how can I better serve Almighty God, my Creator, where I am with the talents that I have, the experience that I've had, how can I best serve God and Christ? How can I best serve the church? How can I best serve this work? How can I best serve my fellow Christians? How can I best serve my family? And how can I best serve every human being around me? I'm here as a servant, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. How can I best use my time my energy, my talents to serve others. You've got to think about that. I can't do even some things that I used to do, some never did do perfectly, but I used to try to help wash dishes, believe it or not, at the Feast of Tabernacles and help in various physical ways way back when I was first coming in the church. And now I I can't even do those things at home. If I start to stand up, I'll fall over. Some of you see that. It's bad. But what can I do the best? Well, I can do the best that I have with what I have by using the 63 years of experience in the ministry to teach you and to help you and to write articles for you and the brethren around the world. That's the most good I can do. And if I can do certain good personally by talking to some of you or trying to encourage you, I'll do that. Other things I should do. But some of you new people, you can do some of the dishwashing. You can do some of the helping others around, helping old people around in the, in the office and then the church here getting in and out, helping set up the luncheon table, helping do every way that you can. Some of you young people can do like Close Shepherd and Mr. and Mrs. Starkey and others did me years ago. Mr. and Mrs. Hammer did all over the big sandy area. Go visit people, help people, encourage them, have them to your home, call them on the phone, build them up. You've heard me tell those stories, how Close Shepherd would write me a encouraging letter Every single week almost, how, how wonderful my sermon was. And of course, I knew she was acting like my mother. I knew I was practicing. Mr. Armstrong sent me up to practice on the Portland church. But I could see that she was an older lady. And she was trying to encourage me. It still was encouraging. But I knew why she was doing it. That's fine. But she was trying to encourage others. She'd be out as a long woman, visiting others, helping others, bringing the sick people food, bringing food to young women, having a baby who needed extra help, do all those things. Several women all over the Church of God are doing those things. There are different ways to help, to serve, to give. How can you, you need to ask yourself, how can you, Joanne Smith or Bob Smith or whatever your name is, give and help and serve the church? How can you best serve every human being in the world the best you can with what you have to do with and do it with your heart? In that way, you're preparing to be a king or a priest to help, to build, to serve, and to be Christ's servant in tomorrow's world. It really is. God wants us to do that in every way. So the church is to be knit together as a team. The church is to be knit together in love, though, in that attitude of family, of loving one another. Turn to Second Timothy now, if you would. Let's turn now at this point to 2 Timothy chapter 1. In 2 Timothy 1, notice Paul's introduction here, writing this young evangelist that he himself had been training. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. So Timothy, my beloved, 
Kind of interesting, isn't it? My beloved son, you can see he had a very deep, profound closeness and love for Timothy. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. You notice that he never, ever mentions the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit was not one of the persons in the family of God. I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did without ceasing. I remember you in my prayers night and day. Was Paul lying? If he was, God will not let him be in his kingdom. He prayed for the churches night and day without ceasing. I remember you in my prayers night and day. Great desire to see you being mindful of your tears that I may be filled with joy. Timothy had perhaps cried about mistakes he'd made and Paul loved him and prayed for him continually. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith, a real deep sense of trust that is in you, which it dwelt at first in your grandmother Lois. I've told you how my grandmother Elizabeth Cunningham helped me so much that I was growing up to have a love for the Bible. My grandmother and dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I'm persuaded as in you also. You see, they were serving God by helping Timothy. They were serving God by strengthening this young man growing up in their family. Maybe God was not calling them as older women to be ministers, but he did call Timothy to be a powerful evangelist and help hundreds and hundreds of people and have his name mentioned many times in the Bible. Therefore, I remind you to stir up, whip into flame as it is. You're like you're whipping up a fire into flame. Stir up the gift of God which is in you through the gift laying on of my hands. So Paul had baptized Timothy. Paul personally laid hands on Timothy. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power. As I mentioned in the sermon last week, that's the first thing. Interesting. Power. God's Holy Spirit gives us power that we would not otherwise have. Power to overcome our human nature and vanity and lust. Power to overcome the world which is surrounding us so much today. Power to overcome Satan the devil and his demons. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. But share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. God has called us to suffering. All who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Your New Testament tells you. You know that. We're going to go through terrible trials, brethren. You're going to need the power of God. And put your faith and trust in God but know that you are called to be kings and priests. God is training to you to be a leader at that time that literally millions of our fellow Americans and Canadians and Britons come back as it describes back here. I'm going to digress and read a little bit here that I hadn't uh, planned to read necessarily, but it may be helpful just briefly. Part of it back in uh, Jeremiah 31 where it describes how our people are going to be coming back from, from the captivity. Jeremiah 31, we're going into this horrible captivity the time of Jacob's trouble, described in Jeremiah 30. But then it's going to be later, it says for chapter 31, verse 7, For thus says the ever-living one, Sing with gladness for Jacob, and shout among the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Remnant, so many of them have already been killed by this time. Behold, I will bring them from the north country. Obviously, north of Palestine, they've been taken to slavery in Europe and Germany and elsewhere. And gather them from the ends of the earth, among them the blind and the lame and the woman with child. As I've told you a number of times, brethren, I never saw so many people blind and lame and had eyes put out and ears missing and legs and arms cut off. Never remotely until Dick Armstrong and I went to Germany in 1954. It was already nine years after the war. But those people have been bombed and bombed and bombed and they were torn to pieces. This is going to be just as bad and even worse. You know that. The most terrible time in human history is going to come on them. They're going to come back, many of the missing eyes and ears and legs and arms, the lame and blind, the one with labors with child, a great throng return. And they shall come with weeping. Why didn't we listen? They're going to cry out. What's wrong with us? God have mercy on us. They're going to really be sorry they didn't listen. And with supplications, I'll lead them. 
I will cause them to walk by the waters in a straight way, and they shall not stumble, for I'm a father to Israel. God is our father. He says a little later in verse 10, He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does the flock. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, ransomed him from the hand of one that was stronger. Verse 12, Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion. And the last part of the verse, They shall sorrow no more at all. God will bring them back. But as he brings them back, you and I better be there. We'd better be part of that team that Jesus Christ is going to use and say, Look, we're not from the human government to help you take your taxes. We're from Christ's government. We're here to help you. And we could put our arm around them literally and love them, help them, encourage them, heal them supernaturally if they have faith and God guides us. All kinds of things we can do for them as members of the family of God, the team that Christ has prepared to bring these people back to teach them how to keep the Ten Commandments, how to love God, how to love their fellow man, how to forgive one another, to really forgive each other and get on with it, and to forgive themselves from their sins and live and enjoy throughout God's eternity in the family of God. They're going to have to be helped and taught and encouraged and inspired to do that. We will be there to do that for them. They're going to need that kind of help. You talk about psychological counseling. They're all going to have to have that. But as spirit beings, we will know how to do it far better than we do today. And we can help them. And God will want to help them as members of his team. Members of the team Jesus Christ is preparing right now. So I hope we can get that picture, brethren, and think about that. That's why we're called now to do that very kind of thing. So we all need to be a team and work under Jesus Christ. Notice now, if you would, let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy back again. Let's go to chapter 2. He says to Timothy, you therefore, my son, 2 Timothy 2 verse 1, be, son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Don't be weak, be strong in the gifts that God gives. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men. That's my job. I've got to get others involved. And Mr. Ames and I and Dr. Renale and Mr. Weston and other leaders have to work together to choose the right ones to carry on this work. Ask God to give us wisdom. We've got to beseech God for discernment, for wisdom, and to take, bring along many of these younger men to help us. And many of you newer men, as this work grows, we're going to have to have help. And many of you are going to be able to help full time. Many of you are going to not work full time, but you'll be able to help much more than you are now. You'll have God's spirit much greater, more power. So we've got to commit these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. My father fought under General Pershing's army in World War I. It was not very much fun over there, trench warfare. He described some of the awful conditions they had. They were without food. They were standing out in the rain over and over. It was a horrible time. War is hell, as General Sherman, I guess, mentioned. It is. There's going to be no more war. But spiritually, we are soldiers. We're going to go through hardship. We've got to give up. Some of us may be beaten up physically. Some of us may be put in jail physically. Some of us are going to suffer hardship physically. Please, brethren, be willing to do that. Don't give up and quit if you have some hardship. Some of you grown up in this nation, nothing ever bad has happened. You're spoiled. Get over it. Don't be spoiled. Be willing to give your life to God and really mean that. Be a good soldier for Jesus Christ. You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engages in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life. If you're in the ministry, don't run some business on the side. Don't get yourself involved in too many other things. Your mind is to be holy on serving God, and that's the overwhelming thing all of us should do. That ought to permeate our whole life. What we think about, talk about, pray about, act about. The work of God, preparing to be kings and priests in God's kingdom. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these physical things will be added to you. God will take care of you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Seek ye first. Matthew 6, verse 33. Never forget that scripture. And we need to really understand that and act on that. 
Now, brethren, turn to Titus, if you would. The very next book here in your New Testament, turn to this little book of Titus. And I want to uh, pick up a couple things here. Start in verse 4, chapter 1, verse 4. To Titus, my true son, in the common faith, Paul writes, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. For this reason I left you in Crete. He left Paul on that big island of Crete. I've been there, one of the big islands in the eastern Mediterranean, that you should set in order the things that are lacking. Everything was messed up in the church. They didn't have the right leadership there. And appoint, not hold an election. Electing ministers is not right. Appoint elders. Some of our own brethren in scattered groups around this country don't get it. They still don't get it. That's the first one of the restored truths that Mr. Armstrong talked about when he enlisted them. The government of God, the right way of government. That's part of being on Christ's team. You've got to understand that. Are you going to try to bring in some different way? Appoint, he says, elders in every city as I commanded you. Was he being mean? Well, he didn't command him in love, but Timothy was a younger, newer minister. Paul told him to. He didn't probably say I commanded, but certainly he was telling him what to do. If a man is above reproach, not perfect, the word blameless does not mean perfect in the English as the way it came from the original Greek, I mean. It means above reproach. He doesn't have any big obvious sins. The husband of one wife, having faithful children, is not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop, an elder, an overseer, it means literally, a bishop means overseer, one who sees over, must be above reproach as a steward. The church of God does not belong to me or any of us ministers. We're God's stewards to help administer it poor Christ, the living head, not self-willed. We must not just want what we want and be self-willed about it, nor quick-tempered, losing our temper real quick, not given to wine. God shows we should drink wine, can drink wine, but we're not to be given to wine, drinking too much and getting drunk, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable. An elder should try to be giving of himself to others as best he can. A lover of what is good, good things, right things, pure things, Sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled. Notice verse 9. An elder of God, a true elder, must be holding fast the faithful word. Be faithful if you're a leader in God's church. You're a department head. And some of you young men are coming along like that. And later, so many of you may become elders. A faithful man, as he's been taught. Notice that expression. He must work with the faithful word. Hold fast the faithful word. As he has been taught. Some new deacons or elders come up with different ideas and don't even check them. That doesn't happen very often anymore, but it does. It used to. It's not wrong to have an idea, but at least run it by some of us. And we may have had that idea run before us 50 times. About every few years they revive the idea of the sacred names. We've got to speak Hebrew. They revive the idea of counting Pentecost a different way. They revive the idea of having the Passover on the 15th. Those are not new things, but some new people don't even understand that. We have to face that continually. Other ideas that are just don't make sense. Holding fast, and elders have got to have that sense that Christ is the head of the church. Get it, you men that are coming along. Christ really is the head of the church, and he will guide these things. If you see this as God's church, we are preaching the truth. We're really doing God's work, not just talking about it, but doing it. We are not just talking about it, but teaching and administering the government of God the way the Bible talks about it. Then you'd better have respect that Christ is the head of that church that's doing that. And know that Christ will guide the church overall. He will guide it. So respect what we've come to over the many years. In our ministerial meetings, we often go back, Mr. Ames, it used to be Dr. I mean, Mr. Pardon and others of us remember what Mr. Armstrong said, what we discussed back during the 1950s or 60s. It isn't an accident. God guided things back then. He'll guide them today. We can learn from that and know that Christ is alive. He's the head of the church. So we're to hold fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine, not some new ideas, both to exhort and convict those who contradict for there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers. Some deceivers come in. I could name some of them. They came in back 
during the 1970s and tried to overthrow Mr. Armstrong. And some of us fought them for a while in a spiritual fight, I don't mean physically, and kind of stopped their mouths. But then, after Mr. Armstrong died, they suddenly reemerged. They got well physically. They were put back in position, brought that same stuff right back in again and took over, took over the work that some of us had to leave or were kicked out because we taught the truth. We would not back down. They kicked me out of Big Sandy. And Mike Fazell himself and Dr. Ward and several others told me, at least they told me honestly, three or four of them, you were not put out because of your administration. You were put out because you would not go along with the doctrinal changes. And that's right. I would not go along. I will not go along. I will never go along with those changes unless it is really proved from the Bible in a way it never has been. It may cost you your job. It cost me my job. It may cost you your job. You don't know what it's going to cost you. You've got to fight for the truth sometime. Hold fast the faithful word. Don't just be pushed around. Believe me, the truth is precious. You've got to be willing to fight for it. If God's going to put you over a whole city and Christ is going to put you over a whole nation or later or perhaps a whole planet somewhere out in the universe, he wants to know where do you stand. Will you hold on to the truth even when it seems difficult? Will you fight for the truth? Are you stable? Are you stable? Do you know and know that you know? So you want to have that attitude, show Christ that, and that's an important part that you have to play for the future. Notice now in 1 Corinthians 12, turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if you would, brethren, at this point. And I want to begin reading here in verse 27. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. Each one of us are part of Christ's team. And God has appointed these in the church. These are jobs he's given. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers. After that, get it, miracles. They're less, but they're important. Miracles, then gifts of healings plural, different kinds of healings. Some are healed immediately, some are not. Helps, administrations, different ways of administering in the church, in the ministry, varieties of tongues, are all apostles, prophets, teachers, workers of miracles. Do all have the gifts of healing? No, we don't all have those same gifts. Some are stronger than others in certain ways. But earnestly desire the best gifts, yet I show you a most excellent, a more excellent way and then he goes on in chapter 13. It must all be based on love. Absolute outflowing concern and kindness and warmth and affection wanting to help the other person. As it says in chapter 13, verse 4, love suffers all and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. That is perhaps the key phrase in there. Love does not say, here's what I want and I'm going to get it. Love does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. So you want to really try to learn that approach and have that attitude as you exercise the gifts that God gives you. So we do need to understand the, 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 the situation of really being on Christ's team. Our team, brethren here at headquarters and in the Living Church of God with Mr. Richard Ames, whom we just honored after 50 years of faithful service, never turning aside, never stabbing Mr. Armstrong in the back, never being a rebel, never teaching heresy. We've seen Dr. Winnell come along and administer the churches faithfully. We've seen Mr. Weston, who's outstanding as a leader and has been running the work in Canada and now going to run the work in Britain and Canada and if anything happened to me, Mr. Ames would take over. And I hope you can understand the love, the kindness, that we have to forgive each other, work together as a team. And most of you see that in the attitude that Mr. Ames and I and Dr. Nail and Mr. Weston when he's here and Mr. Wakefield and Mr. Mr. Saselka and my son Jim and the other leaders here have for one another. There's a kindness, there's a warmth, a mutual respect. We have that attitude. We have that spirit here of helping each other, backing each other up, serving one another. So we've got to be sure that we have that in every way. So brethren, each one must search his own heart 
Again, I say, how can I best serve my God with the strength I have, with the age I am, with the time I have left, with the energy I have, with the situation I am now? How can I best serve my fellow human being? How can I best help this work? Some have different gifts. Back in Romans chapter 12, if you want to turn back to Romans at this point, chapter 12, he talks about some of those. I started to skip that, but I'll take a few minutes here. It talks about in verse 5, So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. In the New Testament, that usually means preaching. If you have real faith, that faith comes through as you preach. Prophesy according to the degree of faith you have in God. Do it zealously. Or ministry, let us use it. Whatever it is, do it with your heart. God says, whatever your hand finds to do it, do it with your might. Or he who teaches on teaching, give yourself to teaching, to strengthening, to helping others. He who exhorts on exhortation. He who gives with liberality. Some of our brethren and some of you out there who are going to hear this later, you're givers. That may be the one thing you can do. You want to just make fun of that, but it is your part to pray, personally cry out to God and to help those around you. But some of you can give quite a bit to God's work. Give liberally. Don't just use a little bit of your tithe, but give a full tithe. And if you have a lot of money, dig in the principle. It won't hurt you once in a while. Sell some extra land. Do some extra things to help to build the work. If, you're, if your whole life's in it, why wouldn't you do that? Be willing to give, to help, to serve with every fiber of your being. Don't put it second or third. God is real. The end of this work is near. The end of this whole society is near. Go all out. He who gives, do it liberally. Do it with all of his heart. So God tells us that. He who leads with diligence... Be zealous in leading and teaching the truth and show them the right way. He who shows mercy, not grudgingly show mercy, show mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without dissimulation, uh, without hypocrisy. Abhor what is good. Learn to hate evil in the right way. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate. An attitude of brotherly love. Even in the ministry, we're not to be exhorting or beating up on each other or beating up on the brethren. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. I know one guy who has his own dictatorship wrote a whole part of a whole booklet attacking me because he said I was talking about, uh, use the term, uh, uh, oh, what was it anyway, uh, uh, a type of love, collegial. I wanted a collegial government. Well, collegial can mean we're all equal, but it can mean brotherly. And I meant it in that way. We have a collegial spirit among us in the ministry. I'm not giving orders to Mr. Ames and everybody else from the top of a mountain and all. I talk it over. We get multi-council. Sometimes I back off and modify what I'm saying. We're to be collegial in that way. We're to love each other. To work together as a team, to lay down our lives for one another, to genuinely try to help others and serve others and build others with every fiber of our being. Give everything we have to God, hold nothing back. That's what God wants. And be kindly affection toward one another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence. Be diligent to do all of this. Fervent in spirit. Be zealous. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, be willing to go through trials and tests like the Apostle Paul, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the necessity of the saints, help others, serve them, give them to hospitality, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Pray for them, ask God to help them get over it. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Do not be of, be of the same mind one to another. Learn to work together as brothers with every human being. Do not set your mind on high things. Don't just associate with the big people all the time. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Be humble, that's what he's telling us. 
Every one of us has got to be humble enough to know that we are absolutely worms compared to God. We've got to give our lives to God, give our lives to this work, try to serve others and be genuine servants, bond slaves of Jesus Christ and build the work of God, build the church of God with all of our being. That's why we're here. We're training to be kings and priests forever. So we've got to have that attitude as all these things. Now let's turn back, if you would, to Second Timothy again. Let's turn back again to Second Timothy. And now I want to talk about this in verse 6. Turn to Second Timothy chapter 4, I mean, verse 6. Paul was writing near the end of his ministry. He knew that he was under the death sentence by now. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. Paul had gone through just horrible things, being beaten up, his whole face swollen from having rocks thrown at his head and getting up the very next day at Lister, going right on and going right back through those same cities where he'd been beaten up and thrown in jail. And he said, as you read it in, in, in Acts 14, we must through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. As they looked at the bloody scars and his swollen face, I bet they thought, that's right, that guy knows that. He knows that. He's just been left for dead right outside Lystra. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. You've got to finish the race, brethren. You've got to have that attitude to really give your life to God and say, Father, I want to be on the team Jesus Christ is using. I'm willing to learn his government. I'm learning to get, live his approach to serve, to give, to help. I want to be there. I have kept the faith. Finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not to me only, but to also all them who have loved his appearing. Are you going to love his appearing? If you walk this way, if you live this way, you're going to look forward to it. You won't be ashamed before Christ at his appearing. You'll be very grateful he's come back. So let's do that, brethren, with all of our heart, and be sure that you keep on in faith. Don't give up along the way. Keep on in faith to the very end. And then you can receive your crown and you'll be on Christ's team for the next thousand, the next million, the next trillion years forever on the team Jesus Christ is using to help rule at that time, not just the world, but the entire universe. May God stir all of us to do just that.